to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. Tonight, we wanted to continue a conversation that we very briefly started last week on Lutheran ethics. This is something that came up when we were doing the gospel reading last week, and it's a discussion that, uh, Pastor, you and I have had several times off screen. And so we figured uh, maybe now's the time to have this discussion on the broadcast, on the podcast, and talk through some of these uh, interesting points in Lutheran ethics. So we should afflict everyone with what we've afflicted ourselves with. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yep. I think so. I think so. It's good. It's good. And and let's just revisit the gospel reading, if that's a good time to do that. Yes, please. Okay, so just the first half of last week's gospel reading, Luke 14, 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So this prompted a bit of discussion because, well, was Jesus employing what we would call situational ethics, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Last week we talked about there seems to be this misinterpretation of Jesus' words here where people take him to mean that, well, uh, all these religious observations aren't really important. The only thing that we really care about is helping other people. Uh, people take this section, and and that's kind of the, the main point they get from this. And last week, we talked a bit about why that's wrongheaded, and that, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But that led into this other discussion, uh, so as you mentioned, situational ethics. But then we started talking about, okay, well, what is what actually is Lutheran ethics, uh, if we can even use that term? Like, it, it doesn't seem like we have, like, a coherent moral philosophy like say our roman catholic brothers and sisters have you know they have all of these uh different moral dilemmas kind of decided for them by the magisterium and this is all backed up by this uh centuries-long tradition of moral philosophy that goes into this and for us lutherans we really don't have anything like that at least not today no and then you know i threw in the or I often throw out the verse uh, where Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, Mm -hmm. which almost makes it sound like, well, it's up to you, whatever seems right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that we, we could call that antinomianism, which is meaning you're against a codified law. Right. And, and we're not. So what do we do? Right. Yeah. See, that's, that's the thing we have. We clearly have like a set of principles that we live by. And I think we would well, all... Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Or we should anyway. Yeah, we should. 
And I, I think most of us, uh, what that looks like is we just kind of take the straightforward commands in the Bible, and that's kind of our moral code. So everything God commands us to do, that's obligatory. Everything he forbids, that's the stuff that we shouldn't do. And we kind of have this idea that everything that isn't in the Bible is kind of falls under that Christian liberty category. Right. And that, just let me interject here briefly, that that context of Paul saying all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, which I probably used a little too much or too widely, too broadly, too all-encompassing or something, I, I repent. Um, he is talking about religious observances and whether or not to eat meat offered in the in the market, if it's been offered to a false god and things like that. And 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 the, the conclusion there, and he does talk about the Lord's Supper in there, but the conclusion there is that you are to be concerned about the weaker brother. Right. But he's talking about when you look, stop and look at it, he's talking about religious ethics. Can we, is that a term? Yeah, well, we can make it a term. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm a king. I declare that that is now a term, sort of religious um, rules and regulations. Yes. And um, so th- those are things that we would say fall under the category of Christian liberty to begin with. So th- this is a really important distinction. Yes. Uh, that verse isn't saying that we have no moral code and everyone should just do what's right in their own eyes, right? Uh, what what it's saying is there is a set of actions that are, we can say, permissible, things that we're allowed to do. But even within the category of things that we're allowed to do, not all of those things are beneficial in certain circumstances. Right? And he is talking about religious stuff. Yes. If I can sort of, you know, you have all the dietary rules and all that stuff that he's saying, look, you, you can't go back to that. And it's and it's in Galatians where he, he says, if you want to be circumcised, well, then you have to hold to the whole law. Right. And then if you do that, well... You've fallen from grace. You've severed right. yourself from Christ. So there, the idea of, of of things being permissible or the or the Christian liberty is that we're not bound by the Old Testament rules and regs. That's right. Yeah, Re- in a religious setting, in a religious way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that so right in context. Um, I think the immediate context was meat sacrificed to idols, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that bothered some people's consciences to consume meat that was sacrificed to idols, even though that's something that in principle uh, is permissible. Uh, that still don't exist. Right. Right. I right. mean, for that one reason, they, but, but the concern that he brings up is be concerned about the weaker brother. Yes. Right. Yeah. So religious Christian Liberty in respect to religious things, bearing in mind that you want to be concerned about the weaker brother. Yes. One of the problems I think we have in the new Testament era is that we don't have this, set in place even religious or worship guideline mm-hmm. you know there's some vague things about well, when you get together you say a, you know you say a psalm you have the prayer you have the lord's supper things like that but it's very it's very vague it's very general that's true and and even luther talked a lot about you know we can we can do what we want to in our religious setting we tend to do the same thing just for the sake of unity and for consistency but we have Christian freedom there. Right. No, that, that's exactly right. And um, I, I think we also see these principles come into play, uh, perhaps not even so much in worship settings, but also like I, I commonly see it uh, with like alcohol consumption. 
So like uh, alcohol consumption is uh, a Christian liberty that we have, but there are certain circumstances when we probably should choose to refrain. Perhaps there's someone in, in the group that you're with that struggles with alcoholism or something like that. That That's exactly one of the instances that uh, the text is talking about here, right? Yeah, uh, it's it, something that's permissible, but it wouldn't be beneficial to the brother that you're currently with. Right. And that, that the whole thing about the Christian person is their emphasis is always to be on the other, whether the other is your relationship with God or others, other people. Right. But we're to be concerned more about God and others than ourselves. Right. Exactly. And, and that kind of sums up that section of Corinthians, I think, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's kind of go back and revisit this problem. Uh, so, so we mentioned that, um, unlike our Roman Catholic brothers, we don't have like this agreed upon set of moral principles, uh, or like a single principle we can point to when it comes to these, uh, moral dilemmas that aren't explicitly laid out in scripture. So we have scriptures, clear commands, and we know what to do with those. However, it seems that there are some moral dilemmas that pop up that aren't explicitly addressed by scripture. And one temptation is just to say, if it's not directly forbidden in scripture or commanded, then uh, it's a matter of Christian liberty. It's, it's basically up to you. Right. But um, that doesn't seem to be the case. No, it leaves a vacuum, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It seems that there are moral dilemmas that we face that perhaps are, are just a, product of like new technology or just novel scenarios that the Bible doesn't mention. And it causes us to take a moral stance one way or the other. Um, And we need that sort of guiding principle to help us make decisions in those specific areas. It seems. Yes. We need some structure and we need some guidance. And, and, and I guess one of the pitfalls would be, uh, to fall into a bit of legalism mm-hmm. where someone else tells you what to do. Right. That And that, that doesn't sit well. Right. No, that, that's a good point. We don't want to make it seem like we're suggesting that we need like a magisterium to tell us what to do for every single moral dilemma that pops up. Like, I, I think we've seen what the dangers of that are in the medieval uh, Roman Catholic church. Right. Yeah, we had to have uh, a reformation about that, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it does. It, it doesn't work. Often, often leadership um, and and uh, power grabbing, it it's not productive. It's not helpful. Yes, yes. It's not like leading someone to the right conclusion. You know, it, it's a different a different way to look at it. So. Exactly. So uh, I want to be clear that that's not what we're suggesting. Um, but I what I think would be helpful is uh, an agreed upon set of values or principles that we can kind of point to uh, when these sorts of moral dilemmas pop up. And I think it's kind of novel that we don't have that, at least in American Lutheranism. If you go back to some of the uh, reformers, and we'll look at some of this a little bit later on tonight, um, they had a much more strongly agreed upon set of principles than than we have today. And, And we'll talk about what that looks like. But um, yeah, just some of these moral issues that pop up, we need to have a way to discern whether or not an action is right or wrong when it's not explicitly commanded in scripture, it seems. That that seems to be really what we're missing 
in yeah, our we need some we need context. some guiding principles. Yeah, we don't necessarily need specific uh, rules and regulations. We need some guiding principles. So where could we, or what are people? How have people tried to find them or get them? What are the what's the idea there? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about that. I, I think the most common one in our churches today, in a Lutheran church, would be what we call divine command theory, which is just this idea that what makes an action right or wrong is whether or not God commands it or forbids it. And so uh, everything that God commands, uh, obviously those are things that we have to do. Everything he forbids, those are things we can't do. And and we would agree with that part of it. Uh, But where this theory kind of comes up short or leads more to be desired is uh, what do we do when uh, we need guidance uh, from an area that isn't explicitly laid out in scripture. Right. Right. And also, there's also this question of why, why does God command these things? So like God tells us we shouldn't murder each other. Right. Uh, Is that command, is that what actually makes that action evil? Uh, It seems that there's more going on there. It seems that there's actually a reason that God gave that command and the command isn't like the right making property, so to speak. Uh, there, there's something more behind that because if you say the command itself is what makes an action right or wrong, then you kind of get into this arbitrary, uh, place of morality where right. God, God could have commanded anything. Yeah. God yeah. says this or says that, and that's what made it right or wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that's not, that's not the way God operates, is it? No, that's right. Yeah. People hold to this view would say something like, you know, God could command that we have to murder one person every day. For the rest of our lives and if he commanded that it would be good and i think most of us kind of intuitively see that as problematic yeah it's not a god not the god i know right right yeah. yep so that that's i think the first theory that people kind of fall into probably the most popular one divine command divine command yep god god commands it we follow yep yep okay. exactly and we're going to get back to that question about, well, why does God command certain things? We're going to get back to that. Yes, we will. Just in case people are wondering. The second camp I see people fall into in our church is utilitarianism. Uh, And this is the idea that ethics is all about maximizing the best outcomes, whether that be happiness, pleasure, uh, anything that we might deem good. So uh, the right actions are the ones that maximize the good things, and the bad actions are the ones that bring about these negative consequences. And um, this is largely seen as kind of a secular ethic, but I, I think it's a temptation for us as well. Uh, you, I, I mentioned to you that I, one area where I see people really use utilitarianism to justify their moral reasoning, as we were talking about uh, the bombing of Hiroshima in, in World War II, right? And uh, you open so, this can of worms. <laughs> yeah, this is a controversial one because I think if you ask most people in our churches, they would say that uh, those bombings were were justified because they brought about into the war and that saved uh, presumably a lot of lives, right? Yeah, possibly millions of lives by ending the war when it did, and that yeah, that's sort of the thought that you know I sort of had that you know it was a. Something, maybe even in my mind, I called it a necessary evil. Yeah, yeah. And I think a but lot it, of people would think that way. Yep. But it's a but, utilitarian way of looking at an action, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
yes, it is. Yep. Uh, we acknowledge that a lot of evil came from those bombings, but we justify it by saying, well, look at all the other lives that it saved. And ultimately, that is a sort of utilitarian calculus. And I would and say, well, they were collateral damage. Yes. And I, I thought that way for a long time as well. My, my reasoning or my thinking on this kind of changed when I uh, started doing research on uh, some of the dialogue that the target selection committee used to pick which cities they were going to drop those bombs on. So there are actually it, people in the military or in intelligence who decided the targets based on certain criteria that they developed. That's right. Yep. There was okay. a committee that was responsible for choosing where those bombs were going to be dropped. And uh, long story short, it was all about maximizing damage and kind of the shock value. And that included uh, taking these innocent lives. And it, it's clear that the taking of innocent lives was used as a means to end uh, the war. And obviously, ending the war is a, a, a noble goal and something everyone wanted. Uh, but using that sort of evil means to bring about that end is where I think uh, we can fall into trouble. Right. So what you, what you determine by reading some of the transcripts or summaries of their discussions was that the civilians or the non-combatants weren't collateral damage. They were the target. Right. Right. See, that's it's clear very... that they pick the targets to bring about these civilian casualties and maximize them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Obviously very sad. The whole thing's sad. All of it's sad. And that, and, and when you think about the rationale behind that, then you think, wow, okay. It's, it's, it, it, it seems so wrong, and yet I'm still sitting or thinking, yeah, but it ended the Pacific Theater's <laughs> right. war. It's right. hard to get. It's hard to get past that thought that it was it worth is. it or something, right? It is, and and the only reason I bring it up is because I think kind of the first step in this process is uh, kind of confronting how we think through these moral issues right now. So if, if we we should be analyzing our own sorts of individual moral philosophies to kind of see how, where that's in line with scripture, uh, maybe how that lines up with uh, the rest of the Lutheran tradition, whether or not um, we're in line with the people like Martin Luther and Martin Chemnitz who wrote about these things and thought about them, uh, you know, in depth. And so kind of being aware of where we're at now helps us to see the broader problem, I think, and potential solution as well. So, okay. That's why so utilitarianism is no good. So let's, is there anything else we can look at? The last thing is uh, sort of moral subjectivism. And I don't think this is a, a big problem in our church. It's just this idea that all morals are kind of individualistic and you need to decide for yourself what's, what's right. I don't see this so much in, in our synods. I think you see this more in uh, synods that are, are perhaps a little bit more theologically uh, liberal, kind of the... Um, tendency to make everything an individual choice and decision and kind of elevating individual decision as kind of this end all and be all of, of morality. Right. So now if someone doesn't believe in the existence of God, what else do they have? That's right. This is kind even of, if, even if they choose something else, they're still just doing it on their own without considering God's role. Yes, that's right. Because, because they're God. Yep. Yep, mean, that's in, right. In, in, in their mind, the individual is God. Yes. 
I mean, that not to, that sounds kind of crass and, and judgmental, but basically that's what it boils down to. If you if, if God isn't your God, then you're you are your own God. That's right, and and that's why I would say this is probably the default position for um, for non theists, for atheists, people who don't believe in God, and atheist kind of society people, at large. Atheist atheist people who don't believe in God. <laughs> yeah. Are there atheists who do believe in God? No, sorry, sorry, I couldn't resist. But yeah, for the unbeliever, what do you have? You have yourself. You have your own thoughts, your own yep. reason and, and ration, rationale. Yeah, okay. that's right. And so that's, I think, where a lot of us are uh, in one of those three camps or maybe a mixture of, of the ones that I mentioned. And so um, I want to turn to maybe a possible solution or at the very least go back and look at the way some of the reformers and many other people in, in church history, even prior to the Reformation, thought about these issues. If you go back and look even at our uh, confessions, there's a reference to what we might call a fourth uh, moral philosophy here, which is what we'll call natural law theory. This idea that, um, I'm just going to read the definition that Corey Moss provided. Uh, there's a really good article on um, natural law theory in the Lutheran tradition, in the Lutheran witness, uh, written by Corey Moss. I think I'm saying his last name correctly. Yeah. And uh, he defines natural law. He says the natural law consists of an objective and universal moral code, the fundamental precepts of which are embedded in human nature and which are discernible by natural reason common to humanity. So here we have this whole other moral philosophy, this idea that what makes an action right or wrong uh, is ultimately what is beneficial to human nature or what is detrimental to human nature. And is that the, and I, I shouldn't phrase the question. That's what Paul's referring to when he says the law is written on their hearts, even, even of the Gentiles, right? Exactly. We yes. know that section from Romans, you know, the, their thoughts, sometimes excusing, sometimes, you know, accusing them that the law right. is written on their hearts. Now, when I, when I teach about this, I, I say, yeah, the law is written on our hearts, but it's because of our sin, it's a bit blurry. Yes. And God's word helps to clean up that gives, it's a lens for us to look at that law that's written on our hearts. Just a little sidebar that it's not perfect. You know, our, our understanding of the law by our own nature of the natural, our understanding of natural law by ourselves, it's not perfect. Right. That's right. Sorry. And let me, let me clear up one misconception. Um, I think a lot of people take that verse to mean that, uh, everyone kind of has this innate sense of right and wrong within them. And, uh, and that, that's true in a sense. But if you look at how Luther interpreted that verse and some of the other uh, reformers, um, they also include this idea that by natural reason, right and wrong are discernible apart from special revelation. And so uh, they, they include that in this idea that the law is written in our hearts, uh, that we can know in many circumstances what, what is right and wrong uh, just by thinking things through, so to speak. Yeah, and, and part of that is having a conscience. Yes, yeah. Right? You, you know, if we're realistic with ourselves, we usually know when we're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so how do we... 
how do we play with this natural law? How do we, how, I mean, it's all fine and good from a theoretical perspective, but how's it play out? So, right. So ultimately it answers the question, what makes certain actions right and what makes certain actions wrong? Uh, so what makes an action right is that which uh, promotes these goods that are kind of intrinsic to human nature. So things like life, um, sociability, knowledge, these are all things that are intrinsically good for us as human beings. And so the actions that promote these goods are generally right, and the actions that frustrate these goods are naturally wrong. And so um, obviously there's a lot of nuance in how this plays out in specific circumstances. But that's kind of the nuts and bolts of how natural law theory uh, works, so to speak. So basically it's it's a understanding of what's good in a very broad sense and, and what isn't. Yes, yep, that's right. And I, I think maybe there's been some resistance to this idea in contemporary Lutheran circles because um, people see this as a standard that's placed on or above scripture or God's commands. And uh, in the section we'll read from Luther, uh, we'll see why that's not the case. Uh, but in short, um, natural law is intended to be an explanation for why God commands the things that he does and prohibits the, the, the things that he does. So if you go down the Ten Commandments, you should be able to give some sort of natural law explanation for why those things are commanded. And some of them are really easy and straightforward. So like, uh, thou shalt not murder. It, it's, it's clear from natural reason why we shouldn't go around murdering each other. It would just be a hellish reality. We, we wouldn't be able to function as a society if uh, there was this constant fear of being murdered by your neighbor. Uh, none of the goods that we currently enjoy would be possible if that fear was always kind of looming in the background and, and murder was like commanded as morally praiseworthy, for instance. Yeah, or the same, you can add, um, you know, stealing to that, right? Yep. Yeah, if, yep. if, if, if you never could could you know provide food for your family because someone was always stealing it it's it just it's just not good for anybody so okay so <clears throat> give me the logical sequence here please because god all that god created was good does that mean that you know pre-fall that his idea of creation included what we regard as natural law yes yes that's right so, uh, presumably in the garden, Adam and Eve would have had like a perfect grasp on, on natural law. They would have known right from wrong in a much more perfect sense than, than we do now. All of their desires would have been, uh, much more rightly ordered than ours are. And it would have been easier for them to see kind of the logical steps that you're talking about. For us, it's difficult because we, we are fallen creatures and we, we have a sin nature, right? And so um, oftentimes our own desires are disordered and things that we perceive as good or evil uh, aren't good and evil in themselves. And that's, that's ultimately what leads people to, you know, create wrong moral decisions, right? They see something as a good that perhaps is not good, or they see something as an evil that's perhaps a good. Or where it gets a little bit hairy is when people see a good, but then 
do something evil to reach that goal. Yes. Yep. And that kind of gets us back to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, sad examples. So yep. would you say that that natural law and good is, is for us, we regard that as simple, a gift from God? Oh, absolutely. Yes. It's a gift from God. Okay. Yes. And that yep. God's law, the, the laws that he gives us in the Ten Commandments, they, they both reflect and influence our perspective on natural law. Exactly. So the, the natural, the Christian natural law theorists would say that all of God's commands are perfectly in line with the natural law. In a, in a moment, we're going to read a section from Martin Luther where he he basically says this exactly. But um, yeah, a, a, according to to Christian natural law theorists, everything God commands are things that are aimed at bringing about. Uh, these specific goods in our lives, right? Or avoiding specific evils. So life and sociability and all those things, productivity, all that stuff, right? Yes. And, right. That, and that's what's so great about it. We have this like uh, dual revelation, so to speak. So we thank God we have his clear commands in scripture. We don't need to leave this up to our own natural re- reason in most cases. He's given us clear commands and clear prohibitions to guide our life. And that is a great gift. But uh, as Luther says here, um, we are also given this gift of natural reason by which we could, in theory, figure these, out, th- these things out for ourselves, even. And he mentions, um, like the Gentiles, the Gentiles didn't have the Ten Commandments. However, they still kind of had these things innately. They were able to figure them out by, by natural reason. And the same so, yeah. is ultimately true for us as well. Yeah, so natural revelation and then you know, there's specific revelation from scripture right we yep. learn things about god from nature and and god has blessed humans with this conscience and then scripture is a, is a specific revealed um, revelation of god and his will for us yep yep that's okay. exactly right okay I, i've referenced a lot of this uh, luther excerpt perhaps i should just go ahead and read it if now's a good time or you won't have to if you keep referencing it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go ahead So uh, this is a writing from Martin Luther on how we're supposed to regard Moses and the law that he gave in the Ten Commandments, just for some context. So he writes, When these factious spirits come, however, and say, Moses has commanded it, then simply drop Moses and reply, I'm not concerned about what Moses commands. Yes, they say, he has commanded that we should have one God, that we should trust and believe in him, that we should not swear by his name, that we should honor father and mother, not kill, steal, commit adultery, not bear false witness, and not covet, as in Exodus 20. Should we not keep these commandments? You reply, nature also has these laws. Nature provides that we should call upon God. The Gentiles attest to this fact, for there was never a Gentile who did not call upon his idols, even though these were not the true God. This also happened among the Jews. For they had their idols, as did the Gentiles. Only the Jews have received the law. The Gentiles have it written on their heart, and there is no distinction, as it says in Romans 3. As St. Paul also shows us in Romans 2, the Gentiles who have no law have the law written in their heart. But just as the Jews fail, so also do the Gentiles. Therefore, it is natural to honor God, not steal, not commit adultery, not bear false witness, not murder, 
and what Moses commands is nothing new. For what God has given the Jews from heaven, he has also written in the hearts of all men. Thus I keep the commandments which Moses has given, not because Moses gave the commandment, but because they have been implanted in me by nature, and Moses agrees exactly with nature, etc. But the other commandments of Moses, which are not implanted in all men by nature, the Gentiles do not hold, nor do these pertain to the Gentiles, such as the tithe, and others equally fine, which I wish we had too. Now this is the first thing that I ought to see in Moses, namely, the commandments to which I am not bound, except in so far as they are implanted in everyone by nature, and written in everyone's heart. So he's saying that Moses is mirroring natural law, and that's what we're bound to, but not necessarily because Moses said it, but because it's naturally right. Yeah. He, he says something even more radical here. He's saying that we are not bound to any of the law that Moses gives uh, unless it's also revealed to us in the natural law, which is a pretty radical statement. Right. And that's, that, I think, mirrors, echoes, reflects quite well um, Paul's discussion about you who want to be justified by the law. Basically, yes. you, you can't. You've fallen from grace if you want to be justified by the law. So Luther's saying you can really just get rid of Moses because you have the natural law and Jesus does address those natural law issues quite nicely anyway. Yes, exactly. Yep, okay, that's well right. that's that that's that's you know and it's okay, so now we have to get to the point of not becoming Marcionites. Mm-hmm. So Marcion was a person who felt you should take the Old Testament, throw it out, took out most of Paul's writings, and, and basically reduced Scripture to a presentation of the gospel. Right. So this is a good place to talk about why we care about Moses. Absolutely. Because you've just dismissed him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let's, well, let's bring him back. Yeah. So even though Luther says we only care about Moses insofar as he's in accord with the natural law, he then goes on to say that everything that Moses was given in the Ten Commandments is in accordance with natural law. So that that's the caveat here. He he is saying that there is this perfect harmony between the law that's given and the natural law. And so that's how he can get away with making that sort of bold claim. It's a bold claim. And he also talks about other reasons why we want to hang on to Moses. Mm-hmm. And the idea, first off, God spoke through Moses and spoke to Moses. So that's that's God's word in that place. Right. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The the other thing is that not only did God speak to and through Moses, but we have gospel promises given to and through Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those people too, right? Right. So we we don't want to dismiss those or minimize them. We need to understand them. That's right. And use the, those Old Testament readings properly. That's right. The the Old Testament isn't all law. There there is some gospel in the Old Testament too, right? Lots of it. Now yeah. the other thing I think that in the in the in that article um, from Luther's works was was the notion of understanding. We need to understand 
to whom was God speaking or giving commandments, right? Right. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit? Yeah. So a lot of the commands that God gives the people in the Old Testament are specifically for the Israelites and don't really pertain to anyone outside of that nation. Yeah. Yeah, We're not called to, you know, go crunch the Canaanites or whatever. Right. There's specific direction given to specific people. And yes. I think L- Luther brought up the uh, the uh, Thanksgiving reading about the 10 lepers um, that, you know, we're not commanded to go show ourselves to the priests. Right. Right. Okay. That's a really simple, I think that's a really good example where Jesus gave someone a command. Well, well, shouldn't we do that? No. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't talking to us. Exactly. You- and that... That can help, huh? There's one. There's one joke that you've told me several times that is actually pertinent here. I tell that... most of my jokes several times. <laughs> <laughs> What's the joke? The the one of Judas, the guy. Uh... Oh, right. So the person wants to determine God's will for his life. So he taken he takes and opens his Bible and says, "What's God's word for me today?" And he puts his finger down and the, and the verse says, "And Judas went and hung himself." Well, that's no good. So he closes his Bible, opens it again. And puts his finger down and reads the words, go and do likewise. <laughs> That's no good. So he cro- closes the Bible again, opens it up, puts his finger down and says, and it says, why do you tarry? <laughs> yeah. So we really need to understand to whom God is speaking. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that helps a lot. When you think about that, when you read the Bible, well, is God telling me to do this? Well, no, that was given to these people. and and But these natural law things are for everyone. Exactly. Yeah, there's a sort of universality about the natural law that doesn't pertain to also some of these Old Testament commandments that were given to the Israelites. And that's an important thing to, to understand. Yeah. So you talk about one of the natural, let's just, let's give a specific example of a, of a moral dilemma that I've had to deal with for a very long time in ministry, um, end of life issues. Mm. Can we just take a few minutes to just talk about that absolutely so you want you mentioned one of the things the 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 benefits or one of the goods is life right so you know psalm 139 says all the days ordained from you were written in your book before one of them came to be so we regard that god sets the number and limits of our days and that he he catches us as we fall out of this life Mm -hmm. so people often have this concern about when do I stop providing a certain medical care for someone when obviously the, you know, like if you talk about life support, we use that to save a life, to give the doctors time to assess, to diagnose and give the doctors time to treat. Right. But when you see that either um, the diagnosis is that they're not going to survive or the treatment isn't working, at what point do you stop that? And then the question is, well, if I stop that, I'm going to kill them. Well, no, you're not. You're you're withdrawing the support, but that's not the same as actively s- stopping someone's life. So we have a very simple, I have a very simple phrase that I use, phrases, that we don't have to go to heroic means to support someone's life, to support them living, uh, but we don't do anything to hasten their death. Right. Now, that's the principle it gets a little dicey when you go to apply it. Yes. And that's why it's good to talk to other people, uh, talk to your, the doctor, talk to your pastor, talk to your fellow Christians about, is this right or is this wrong? Right. 
But the whole and principle is you support your, that life is good. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, that principle you just mentioned is perfectly in line with natural law and natural law would totally agree with that. You, you're not permitted to do anything to take the life of another person, but uh, you're allowed to let nature run its course, so to speak. You're, you're not obligated to provide these heroic measures, as you said. <laughs> My dad mentioned many years ago that uh, he kind of chuckled because the, the idea of the, the phrase is snowing someone where you give them so much morphine that it, it kills them. He said, yeah, it's pretty funny. He said, sometimes people will give morphine to a patient thinking it will hasten the end. But morphine is a very good drug if you're having heart problems because it, it opens up arteries and stuff. And he said mm. he'd seen it where people were trying to do that, but it actually extended the person's life. <laughs> oh, no. So, euthanasia backfired. I, you, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, God's still in control, yeah. I think, is what my dad was trying to tell me. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. We've, we've um, run out of time. Yeah. So I guess just some closing remarks. Um, if you want to learn more about natural law theory, the article from the Lutheran Witness by Corey Moss has a lot of good resources and recommendations for learning more about the natural law. And, and really, the main takeaway here is um, I think we would be much better off if we were somehow able to get back to the same state that these reformers were in in the sense that we all had these agreed upon moral principles that kind of guided our decision-making when scripture is unclear on these specific moral issues. So really, I, I really just mean this to be an encouragement uh, for people to uh, think critically about their own ideas about what's right and wrong and perhaps start to systematize this thought and, and come to grips with the way that they're currently thinking and maybe take a look at what the reformers say make sure it lines up with scripture and start to develop their sort of moral philosophy more fully. And, and hopefully uh, at some point uh, as a group of Lutherans, we get back to the sort of agreement we had at the time of the Reformation. Okay. So I, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Do you remember what issue that article was in the Lutheran witness? When? Yes. It, um, it was, it was something on um, the, the title had the word like Lutherans, public good and natural law. It was in the Lutheran witness. It's online by Corey Moss, last name M A A S. If you, if you Google that, it should be one of the first things that come up. And he has a whole list of citations from not only Luther, but also our confessions. The book of Concord makes numerous references to moral law. And this is, this is something that um, really has influenced our tradition deeply, even though uh, a lot of, Contemporary Lutherans don't realize it. It's it's interesting. We get we we kind of go down these paths, and and we tend to get influenced by um, so much of what's going on around us that we we tend to forget that we need to look to God and what He's given us, and talk to our fellow Christians about some of these issues. Right? Yep. Okay. It's very difficult to resist the mainstream cultural ties that kind of bring you into uh, whatever the mainstream is doing. Right. And so, yeah. um, unfortunately I, I don't think anyone is immune to that. Uh, and that's probably part of the reason that we've um, kind of lost this heritage that uh, had been given to us. Yes. Now I am just um, trying to find that article so that we can, um, 
I'm going to put that up on the screen. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so it is uh, natural law, Lutheranism, and the public good. And my Reverend Dr. Corey D. Moss, M-A-A-S. And it's from the March 2nd, 2011 uh, magazine of the Lutheran Witness. Perfect. Great. So hopefully that hopefully it helps to find it. It's 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 a good, um, not a very long article, gives you a little introduction, but you can just Google uh, Reverend Dr. Corey D. Moss and Lutheran Witness, and you'll probably find it. But there it is, right there. Okay. Yep. And at the okay. bottom of the page, lots of good resources for continued reading on that. Yes, there are uh, references to um, Martin Luther, uh, Small Catechism, and a couple other books of Natural Law. Thought of Lutcher by John McNeil, and of course Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics also deal with those issues as well. Okay, great. Okay, now um, one big thing that we always have to remember, huge thing for us to remember, when we make mistakes, whether it's in our ethics, our behavior, or whatever, as I've often said, it's not so important as what happens or happens to us what we do as to what as to what we do afterwards right and what we always need to do afterwards is seek god's forgiveness seek his mercy seek his grace that's why christ died to forgive us our bad decisions our poor morals our wrong ethics he died for that that's why he shed his blood and died right and that's what we need to do after we well every day right yep we yep. we daily sin much and need his forgiveness okay yep you have a collect for us, do you not? I do. One that does indeed wrap up the, the thoughts about how we are to live with God's guidance. So we pray. Right. Almighty and ever-living God, you make us both to will and to do the things that are good and acceptable in your sight. Let your fatherly hand ever guide us and your Holy Spirit ever be with us to direct us in the knowledge and obedience of your word that we may obtain everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.